Well, I've told this story uh, at least once before, but I think it's been a few years, so it might be new for some of you. Uh, when I was a missionary in Thailand, after I graduated from college, I spent a year in Thailand living as a missionary, and uh, I had a number of quite incredible uh, experiences living in Thailand. Got to see God do incredible work. The church in Thailand is, uh, is growing, uh, despite uh, many, many centuries of uh, almost no, no penetration of the gospel into the culture. But the church is, is finally growing in Thailand. It's pretty sweet to see. One night I was discipling this young guy. He was in college and I was walking him through the scriptures and praying over him. And I'd been meeting with him regularly. uh, And he was beginning to kind of just ask good questions. He was beginning to kind of say, I don't understand. Like, can we look at this again? And, and this particular night, we'd had a really great Bible study. Uh, we had studied, I don't remember what exactly we studied, but we had studied the scriptures and he had asked a bunch of questions and he ended up staying that night. I had an extra bed in my place, so he was staying at my place because we had stayed up late that night talking. That night, as I got in bed, uh, he, he was on the other side of the room and I remember very vividly this overwhelming sense of fear coming over my heart. I'm in bed like any other night. This is every other night. But all of a sudden I turn the light off and I cannot explain to you, the only way I can explain it is just to tell you I was terrified. And I'm a grown man. I, I, I felt a little embarrassed about this. I wanted to turn the light on. That's how I felt. I wanted to turn the light on, but I was thinking I'm gonna be embarrassed <laughs> to the guy that I'm supposed to be leading if I turn the light on in this room right now. But I just remember this overwhelming sense of, I don't know why, but something bad is happening. And the next thing I know, I'm out. I don't wake up again until the morning. Uh, I can't explain how I fell asleep because I was terrified, but I was out. One of the last thoughts I thought about before I went to bed that night was, this friend of mine is going to accept Jesus. He's going to believe in Christ and believe in the Lord today. And then I, I fell asleep. That morning I woke up and I, uh, I got ready and my friend was still sleeping and I was spending some time in the word praying. And, uh, and as I woke up, my, my friend woke up and he looked at me. He said, I'm ready to believe in Jesus. <laughs> I said, what? What happened? Of course, yes, let's pray right now. I want, to walk this, I want to walk through this with you. And this was a big decision for this young man's life. He had grown up deeply Buddhist. He had been prayed over by the Buddhist monks. He was a very, actually a, quite an important uh, Buddhist figure in his, in his small town. And, and he said, last night, as I was falling asleep, everything inside of me was telling me to get out of this place. Everything. It was just this overwhelming sense of, I need to leave. I need to get out of here. And then I felt... The only way I can explain it, he said, is I felt a thumbprint on my forehead like this, pushing on me, saying, you're mine. And he said, I knew it was the Lord. He said, I'm ready to believe. I can't go back. I think we in the Western church often fail to live with a biblical worldview. All through the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, uh, the biblical worldview is that there's far more happening than what we can see with our eyes. Uh, There is a world of angels and demons. There is a spirit at work. Uh, We have a a spirit inside of us. There's the physical world that we see. And then there's the spiritual world that we often don't see. Every once in a while in the scriptures, it's like God peels back the curtains. And we can kind of glimpse and we get a sense, oh, there's far more happening than what we can see. Some, some folks say, you know, I, I think we over, I think 
some folks say, I think as Christians, we, we overdo how much we speak about angels or demons or how much spiritual warfare there is. And they say something like this. I think if we could see with a lens and see the reality of what's actually happening, there would be far less angels and demons in the world than we like to imagine. And I actually believe the opposite. I think if we take a biblical position on this, from Genesis to Revelation, I think if we could see what's actually happening, uh, I think we'd kind of fall to our knees in an overwhelming sense of awe at the depth of spiritual activity that's taking place around us. I've shared with you before, I recall one time, a, a woman prayed over me this powerful prayer. I, I, I was supposed to preach that night, and I was left almost uh, unable to preach. I felt like I had to leave and just go be alone because of her prayer over me. And what part of the prayer I'll never forget, she said, Rafe, I need you to know, she said, when, when you preach, strong angels line the room in the aisles where you preach, protecting that room. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true. I'm, you know, it was prayed over me by a powerful woman of God. But I, I want to ask you this question. If that's true, <laughs> but let's just pretend it's true for a second. It just lined here. <laughs> Praising God with hands like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How would that change your Sunday experience when you come into this place? How would it change your week? Underneath all of our life, whether it's small issues, relational issues, family issues, marriage issues, or whether it's political issues, Supreme Court issues, whatever the issue is that you find happening in your life on a day-to-day -day basis, the biblical position is that there's more happening than what you can see with your eye. And as Christians, you're invited by God to enter into the fullness of the reality. I think sometimes what we do is we recognize the worldview that says there's more happening than, than meets the eye. But then when we go about solving our problems, we just deal with what we can see. We, we look to man-made solutions and we just say, let's go about, okay, here's the issue, how do I fix it? Here's the issue, how do I fix it? All the while, the true problem is far deeper than just trying to fix it up here. And God's given us the tools to work the fuller answer down here. In our passage today in Daniel 10, we kind of get the curtain pulled back and we get a glimpse into the fuller reality of what's taking place in the world around us. A little context for you. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, it reads this way. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Now, a little, just to paint the picture for you, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Daniel, from Daniel 1 all the way through the very end. We're coming across Daniel 10 today, and Daniel now is in his 80s, okay? Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had a vision of when the Messiah would come right? That was Daniel, Old Testament before Jesus ever came. Daniel had this vision from an angel in Daniel chapter 9 of these 70 weeks. And he said, Messiah will come in that time frame. And we know that that came to a date that arrived in Palm Sunday, what we just celebrated the week before Easter a few weeks ago. Incredible. Daniel's prophecy aligns exactly with AD 32 when Jesus Christ came and he marched into Jerusalem. But we also know from this passage a little bit of the context of Daniel. Daniel is now in his 80s. He's lived this faithful life as an exile in Babylon, away from Jerusalem. But now, based on verse 1, the first wave of Jewish um, exiles to go back to Jerusalem has begun to take place. So for 70 years, they've been in exile in Babylon, then in Persia, Medo-Persia. And now Cyrus is permitting the first wave of Jewish exiles to make that dangerous trip back to Jerusalem. 
where eventually we'll get books like Ezra and Nehemiah, where they begin to rebuild the temple. This is an extraordinary moment in the people of God's history. And, and what's happening with Daniel is he's recognizing in this passage the deep weight of what this means. His people are in danger. That's a dangerous trip. There's not many of them that are going back. Jerusalem, they haven't lived there for 70 years. It's, the temple's in ruins from when it was sacked by the Babylonians. And they're going back. Will they survive this trip back there? Daniel's in his 80s and he's bringing this plea before the Lord. Today's sermon has one big idea. If you take one thing away from this, here's what I want you to take away. Behind every earthly trouble lies a spiritual battle. That's it. If you take that away, you're going to get Daniel chapter 10, okay? Behind every earthly struggle lies a spiritual battle. We're going to see this in three particular ways. First way, one thing you need to know about spiritual warfare is that God reigns supreme over every battle you'll ever endure. God reigns supreme. Let's start in verse 2. We'll go through verse 10. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for, full, for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that's the Tigris River, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Pause right there. This passage begins with Daniel in fervent prayer. Um, before I go much further, I need to understand this. When we talk about spiritual warfare, when we talk about Christians entering into the deeper reality of what's taking place, if you are living a prayerless life, you won't be able to enter into this with any integrity. God calls his people to live lives of prayer, where we're communing with God, where we're fellowshipping with God, where we're enjoying the relationship with God. That's what Christianity is. At the end of the day, it's a relationship with the living God, with the transcending God over all the scripture. You have a relationship with that God through Jesus Christ. And if there's no prayer in your life, then there is a significant uh, inability for you to truly step into these places and the deeper spiritual battles that are taking place all around you. Daniel's essentially on a spiritual retreat. The first wave of exiles is, are going back to Jerusalem. Daniel's at the Tigris River, which means he's not at his post where he's supposed to be as the second in command in Babylon and then in Persia. He's kind of gone on this three-week spiritual retreat where he's fasting, he's having no meat, no wine, and he's broken. The Lord invites us to bring our brokenness to him. And remember, what's Daniel broken about? He's broken for fear for his people. More than likely, the text doesn't tell us, but we can assume he's broken for fear for the Jewish people as they make this dangerous trip back to Jerusalem. And he's praying, Lord, protect them. Guard them. Rebuild the temple. Protect them, Lord. That's what he's praying over and he's broken over. Now, who is this person that we meet in these first few verses? Daniel has this vision. It's this incredible vision. Now, this man, who, who, it says that 
what is that? He's clothed in linen, a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist, body like barrel, face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes flaming torches, his arms and legs like burnished bronze. The sound of his words sound like the multitude. Can you imagine that? When, when, when this person speaks, it sounds like an enchi- entire room, rooms full of people are chanting at the same time. That's his voice. Who is this? Well, there are some scholars, in fact, I'd say a minority of scholars, believe this is a very high-ranking angel, okay? A very high-ranking angel. And the reason they believe that it's only an angel, I believe it's something higher than an angel. The reason they believe it's only an angel is because later on in this passage, we see that another angel is speaking to Daniel. He says that I was delayed in coming to you. Well, if this is the same person that says I was delayed, And my position is that this is actually God here. So if this is delayed, how can God be delayed in coming to someone? That doesn't make any sense. So they say it has to be just a high-ranking angel. But actually, I think from the context of this passage, and I think from what we've seen all through Scripture, this is actually God having an appearance to Daniel. Now, why do I think that? That wouldn't be uncommon. All through the Old Testament scriptures, God, the transcendent God, oftentimes makes himself imminent. He comes near in some form to God's people. He did this to Moses. Moses wanted to see him. And God said, I will make all my glory pass before you, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the mountain because if you saw me in my fullness, it would be overwhelming for you. And what do we see happen to Daniel? Well, he gets a taste of God and was it overwhelming for him? He falls on his face. He passes out. That's what happens at the end of this passage. Daniel passes out from the experience. Okay, that happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. That great throne room scene where Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and and God appears to him in this glorious appearance. It happened to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 where once once again the prophet Ezekiel has this image of the, the throne room of God where the transcendent God is making himself imminent and known. But also... It happens in the book of Revelation, the very end of your Bible. Let me read to you a a picture of Jesus that we get in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with long robes and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the description of this man that is meeting Daniel, almost to a T. In fact, I believe the New Testament writers are literally going back to Daniel chapter 10. And, and when John gets his revelation, he's saying, this is what Daniel saw. It's this, that I'm seeing what the prophet Daniel saw. Now, why is this important? One, Daniel's coming before God in a very broken place. If you've ever been broken, Yes, someone said yes. Yeah, everyone, like a roar, can say in this room, yes, is the answer. We've all experienced something like what Daniel's going through. Whatever that is, your story is unique. Daniel had his own story and his own race to run, but we've all got our own race to run, and we've all got our own story, and we all, the differences and, and the different types of brokennesses. As a pastor, and I'm saying this again just this week, this week alone, I have walked through much brokenness with this church just praying fervently with folks from this church. I, 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 I understand that we, we face these same challenges. What's the first thing God does for Daniel in meeting him in his brokenness after three weeks of fasting and praying? Is the first thing he does, he give him all the answers of what's going to take place? No. 
is the first thing he does. He gives him a vision of here's 50 years from now. So you can see the temple getting rebuilt with Ezra and Nehemiah. Doesn't do that. Is the first thing he does give him a glimpse of the Messiah coming later on down the road. And you know, he says, look, you don't realize it, but later this is all paving road for the Messiah to come. No, it's not that. The first thing God does is he gives Daniel an overwhelming picture of the glory of God. And that, that meets Daniel in his brokenness. The first thing he does is he reveals himself in all his fullness to Daniel. He says, Daniel, I see your brokenness. I see your prayers. I see your tears. Now look at me. Just look at this. Look at me, Daniel. In our brokenness, the first thing we need is a bigger picture of God. One of the things, it's one of the biggest challenges I have in modern day Christianity is that we, minim- we make God so small it's almost like we make him a toy to be played with. And you don't get that from the scriptures. And how that snuck into the church, I'm embarrassed when I see it in modern day Christianity. Oftentimes I think when outsiders to the church look in on the church, they go, that's a pretty small God you got. It just seems tame. And honestly, I think sometimes that's because that's the way the modern church has presented our God to the world, as if he's tame, as if he's small, as if he's a toy. You look at scriptures, who is this God with lightning coming out of his eyes and his voice like the roar of of many waters? See, in your brokenness, the the first thing you need to realize is that you don't need a toy God. You don't need a trinket on the side. You need God in all of his fullness. We we have this this tendency we do to to elevate ourselves and and we, we elevate our issues and our problems and our life or our careers and we have this very big view of ourselves and why? We're human, we're sinful. We we all make this mistake. I've confessed to you from this pulpit many times, I make this mistake over and over again. I'm constantly going back to God, God help me with this. Like smaller, 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 right? But what we do is we make ourselves so big and it's all we see. We're surrounded by my world, my problems, my money, my job, my, it's me. And in the midst of that, we forget that when you compare me to God, it's not worth comparing. And what we need to solve these problems is a proper view of God to put us and our problems in perspective. Did the danger go away that moment? Is that how God operates? No, the Jewish people are still in danger and they would be. As soon as they get back, they're facing danger. They're nearly facing extermination once again. The problem didn't go away. God protected them, and we'll see exactly how he protected them. God didn't solve his problem right away, but but he said this, Daniel, Daniel, I'm in control. You see that? And when you recognize that the God of Scripture is in control, somehow, I don't know how, but I can tell you from my life, somehow it makes the challenges that you endure in this life and the things that you worry and pray over in this life seem like they're in someone's hands that that knows what's going on. See, if at the end of the day our problems are in our hands, we're all in a whole lot of trouble. If, If it's all in my hands, my family's in trouble because I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But but if we've entrusted it to a living God who's over all things, who's guided his people for centuries, we're in a good place. That guy's in control. He's got a good track record, okay? I don't know what you're going through today, but I do know this. I think this passage is inviting us to step back and to get a bigger picture of God and to not settle for a a cheap vision that cannot satisfy. We need to see God on his terms. But number two from this, this passage, not only does God give Daniel a bigger picture of himself, but look at what he does for Daniel himself. Dan, it says that Daniel's countenance was fearfully changed. His strength 
fled out of him. He passes out before God from the overwhelming sense of this vision. But then, then, behold, a hand touched me. Now, verse 10, I believe after he passes out, I think verse 10 is the start. I think this is a different angel. I think what we see here is this is the angel that communicates to Daniel in the book of Daniel. So it's angel Gabriel. That's Daniel chapter nine. The angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. I think now you have that same angel speaking to Daniel, starting in verse 10. Behold, a hand touched me. I think this is Gabriel's hand. And set me trembling on my hands and knees. Daniel's overwhelmed. And he said to me, What's the first thing he says? O Daniel, man greatly loved. Pause. He's about to tell a whole lot more after that. First thing he says is, O Daniel, man greatly loved. If that was the only phrase I had to preach on today, we would have enough for an entire sermon that would leave everyone weeping. That phrase is at the heart of the Christian message, and you need to hear it. Daniel, the first thing he needed to know as he's trembling before a holy God, exactly like Isaiah did, exactly like Ezekiel did. They fell on their knees. They bowed to the ground. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. Daniel passes out from the vision. And then an angel picks him up and says, Daniel, you're fully known and fully loved. You see that? Before Daniel begins to get the problem solved, he has to understand his identity as one who follows God. And this is an identity that we forget a lot. We tend to find our identity in a thousand different places and I cannot preach this message enough. I have to say this over and over and over to us as a church because in our modern world, we are prone to make the same mistakes that Daniel was making, the same mistakes Isaiah was making and the same mistakes Christians have made forever where we find our our purest sense of identity, who we are in everything we accomplish in this life. We're a wife or we're a mother or we're a husband or we're a father. We're a banker, we're a pastor, right? We're a lawyer. We're an artist. We're a teacher. We're a race, right? We, we find our identity in what race we are. We find our identity in how much money we have. We find our identity in what our story is. That's a big one, I think, especially for those that have endured a lot in their life. There tends to be a sense of finding your identity as an overcomer. I, I'm someone who, I beat the odds. You see what I've done? That's, that's, that's who I am. And when you present yourself, not only to the world, but to yourself, when you think about who you are, I'm an overcomer. This is my identity. And and God sets Daniel straight. He says, Daniel, not great prophet, not second in command of Babylon. Daniel, man greatly loved by God. In Jesus Christ, your identity is fully formed, full in what Jesus has done for you. And and I need you to understand this fully. Every religion in the world, outside of Christianity, every religion in the world says, here's here's how to find your identity, or here's how to find uh, love and peace with God. If you do these things, you'll earn favor with God. If you don't do these things, you won't earn favor with God. I've shared the gospel with a number of people in the city over the years. When I asked them about their relationship with God, it's exactly that. Tell me about God and what you, is God pleased with you? Well, I've had a good week. You know, this year I've been a lot better than I was in previous, this is what I used to be. But I think God's more pleased with me now because I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And that's an exhausting way to go through life, wondering if God's pleased with you. Wondering, have you done enough? Have you given enough money? Have you come to church enough? Did you pray enough? You know, did you you do enough, enough, enough? And you're going through life and then you ask, are you fully loved? And the answer is, I don't know. 
I think I've done enough. Not Christianity. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it's what we see. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is good. No, not one. We've all lost in terms of earning merit before God. No one's been able to do it. And there is a right judgment for the sin that we've done before God. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system for it. Blood was being shed over and over again. And then we just sang it, but God sent a Messiah. The final lamb who was slain on your behalf, the final blood that was spilled, fulfilling all the Old Testament sacrifices. And he sent the Messiah to take your place underneath the wrath of God. So that all who put their faith in Jesus might have their sins fully forgiven and never have to ask the question again, have I done enough? Have I made enough sacrifices? Have I given enough money? See, when you put your faith in Jesus, the blood that was shed perfectly covers all sins, past, present, and future. Why? Because it's eternal blood. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And it, it, it covers all your sins. So now, when you wake up in the morning, and you've had a bad week, or you've had a good week, you've had a highlight of a year, you've had a terrible year, you're going through something, the first thing you need to hear is, one, this is who God is. Put it in perspective. And then, oh, Rafe, I'm going to speak to myself for a second. Rafe, man, greatly loved by God. Not because of what I've done as a pastor, not because of anything I've accomplished in my life, but because of what Jesus accomplished on my behalf. You see that? Now, whether or not I have a good week, whether or not doubts plague my mind, whether or not I fail as a pastor, man, deeply loved of God. Ooh, that's got a good ring to it. See, if you, if you build your life on that, you kind of can face anything, can't you? What can the world throw at you? <laughs> what, what, what are you going to do to a man who's got nothing to lose? There's not much you can do to him. What are you going to do to a woman who's got nothing to lose? You're going you're to you're you're throw harassment at me? I'm deeply loved of God because of what Christ did. You can't do anything to that person. And you need to be reminded of this over and over. Fill your name in there. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, deeply loved of God. Brad, deeply loved of God. Otha, deeply loved of God. Caleb, deeply loved of God. John Bernard, deeply loved of God. Austin, deeply loved of God. This is, this is overwhelming. It's the gospel. If that's the only phrase I had to preach, that's a good message. Number three, there's much more happening here. Number three, the battle is real and we must be equipped for it. What have we seen? In our battles, the first thing we need is to, to stop treating God like he's a toy and a trinket and to remind ourselves of the fullness of who the God of scriptures is. And then we need to remember that if we place our faith in Jesus, you've got nothing to lose, right? Jesus lost it all on your behalf, okay? You're fully loved in God. Now, you gotta be equipped for the actual battle that you've been called to. The rest of this chapter, let's read it, picking up in verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I've been sent to you. And when he spoke these words to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Interpretation. The moment you started praying, Daniel, who's loved of God, God heard you. There was no delay on God hearing your prayers. Okay? But let's keep going. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. This is an angel speaking. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. 
For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. Again, he's just overwhelmed by this. Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and I have no breath that's left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage, quoting from Joshua chapter one. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, let my Lord speak for you strengthened me. Notice how God, when he deals with us in our brokenness, he strengthens us. That's what he does. He puts his hand on us in our brokenness. He says, stand up, be strengthened, be strong and of good courage. Do you know why I've come to you? But now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, Michael, your prince. And then we go into chapter 11, which will be for next week, which is this vision of what's to come for Daniel. Number of things we have to notice from this, and this has to do with spiritual warfare. From the moment Daniel started praying, he was loved of God. From the moment Daniel started praying, God heard his prayer. And he had started praying this prayer three weeks prior. But there was a three-week gap before the angel Gabriel got to Daniel. Did you see that? Three weeks he was left praying, fervently asking God, protect my people, protect my people. God often answers your prayers, but for a number of reasons, there is often a delay in the answer to your prayers. Why? Well, in this case, it's because the angel had to get from point A to point B, and there was a war happening in the middle of point A to point B. Now, if you've never heard a sermon preached on angels and demons and how this works, this might sound strange, but I want, to, I want us to live with a biblical worldview. Angels are not omnipresent. They're not God. They have to travel from point A to point B. This angel had to get from wherever he was to Daniel. And in order to get there, he had to go through a demonic presence over the nation of Persia, and he had to wrestle and fight against a person called the Prince of Persia which I believe is a very high-ranking demonic presence. And he got stuck there. He couldn't get past him until another angel named Michael, this is crazy, another angel named Michael shows up, who's a warrior angel, and he frees Gabriel, Gabriel to then get to Daniel. Now, a couple things. Let's note this. First of all, when you pray, God always hears your prayers. And oftentimes there is a delay. Sometimes that delay in responding to your prayers is because there is angelic presence that's coming your way and there's spiritual warfare that has to happen for angels to come and support you in the particular way you're asking. Other times there's a delay is because, frankly, time is a tool that God uses. We don't like it, but it is. And sometimes when we start to pray, what's most needed is for God and his sovereignty to look over our circumstance and say, I know you think that's what's best for you and for my glory, but I need you to stay there because there's something you're learning in continuing to pray this prayer over and over again. I have been praying some prayers for decades in my life. And God has chosen and seen fit not to answer those prayers yet. And it's, it's right of him to do that. It is not God's prerogative or mission to answer every prayer we pray immediately. Nor was it in the case of Daniel. In this case, there was a delay. But notice this. Daniel's prayer moved the needle, didn't it? From the moment you started praying, I sent my angel Gabriel. What sent the angel Gabriel? It was Daniel's prayer. This is 
incredible. The people of God have the authority to move the needle of what happens in the spiritual world around us and the spiritual battles that are underneath the real things that are happening in this world. Now, remember the context here. We started this by saying, the whole sermon, there's what we can see with our eyes. There's the challenges we're going through in our marriage. There's the challenges with our children. There's the challenges in politics. You name it, right? There's all these issues we're dealing with. The biblical worldview is that underneath those things, there are deep spiritual battles. I cannot tell you how many times there's been things in my home, and I've shared this a number of times. I teach a whole class on spiritual warfare, things going on in my home where I think I'm dealing with one thing, and then all of a sudden I go, ooh, that is not what I thought it was. And what needs to happen right now is I need to pray because there's demonic presence, and I need this over, and you know what? I pray, and it's over. It's done. I never see this again. I never have to deal with it. It hasn't happened again. And, and that's the world that we live in. This angel was delayed, but Daniel had the authority as a follower of God to reach into heaven and to ask God to respond to the issues he had. Church, how often have I called us to prayer? And I call us to prayer because of passages like Daniel 10. I'm not playing around with this. We are not just a church that's come to church on Sunday and then go about your life willy-nilly as if church is a tack-on to your week. That's not our identity. That's not what we're doing. We're not playing. This city is burning. I don't know if you've noticed or read the news recently. It's not in good shape. And the Lord has called you here to step into those battles. And if you think the battle is only between the things you can see and not the spiritual realities that cause the violence in this city that caused the, the carjacking spike, that, that, that caused all the issues that we've been dealing with, the school systems, with, with the, the craziness that's happening in the public schools, if you think that's just with your eyes and not down here, and then if we try to solve it just with our eyes and not enter into the spiritual reality underneath, we're just moving mud around. We're not solving anything. This is why I'm begging of you to join in the prayer movement that's taking place. Not just to throw, t- to throw prayer on as a tack on to the end of your day, but to join. Because when we pray, you move the needle. Now, let's answer some questions. Who is this prince of Persia that withstood the angel Gabriel? It's interesting. It's a prince of Persia. Now, Persia was a nation. It, it, it was a political entity. And there was a demonic influence over it that withstood an angel sent from God and didn't allow that angel to get to Daniel. Well, it... This passage is the basis for a lot of interesting insights into the spiritual world around us. And I think there's something to be said about this. I, I think one of the ways the devil works is he can't be everywhere at once either, right? The angel, we know from the book of Ezekiel, or the devil from the book of Ezekiel, we know is a fallen angel. And he took a whole bunch of angels wisdom. He can't be everywhere all at once. And I think the way he governs is geographically. And so just like there's a prince of Persia, I think there's a prince of Chicago, in fact, intercessors and prayer warriors that have come from overseas that do incredible work have verified this and told incredible stories about the, the, the spiritual reality of the darkness of this city. We see it in the things we can see. But if we don't recognize that we're waging war against an invisible enemy who is the, the brute cause of a lot of the problems we're facing, then we don't recognize the reality of Daniel 10. The Prince of Chicago hates you as a follower of Christ. He hates what you stand for. He wants to silence you and harass you. And the best thing he can do for a church is to make a a church full of cowardice 
where, where we're just silent on issues. We're silent in the, the matters that take place around us. No courage. Just, just come to church, be quiet, sing in your room, and then go out and live silent Christian lives. If, if it, he'll settle for that if he can get that. And I think for a number of generations, he's made a lot of Christians that way. One of the things we constantly try to do as this church is say, oh, no. That's not what Daniel did. We've seen this already. He was willing to get thrown in the lion's den for his faith. And so are we. Now, who's this angel Michael who came? Well, at the very end of this passage, Daniel chapter 10, verse 21 says, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There's none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. I think Michael is the prince in scripture who's over the Jewish people in the Old Testament. He, he, was, he was particularly the angel that was to protect them from all the problems they faced. And so wherever the people of God went, Michael was their protector. He was their defender. And we see him a number of times in scripture. He also shows up again in the book of Revelation. We see Michael there having a presence, having a responsibility to play. Now, what's the, significant of this, the significance of this battle? Why would there be such a battle taking place over the Jews returning to Israel? Well, I think Satan has read scripture. And I think he knows he's got to do everything he can to not let those Jews get back to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Jews had to be in Jerusalem for the Messiah to be born. Why? How do we know that? The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. As long as the Jews are not in Jerusalem, as long as they're not in Israel, Messiah can't be born. Oh no, here's the Satan, right? Jews going back to Jerusalem, just like the scripture said they would after 70 years. That was Daniel chapter 9. How do we stop them? Wage war. Send all your militants out. Do anything you can to stop them. Don't let them get back to Israel, right? The Messiah had to be of the tribe of Judah. That's Genesis uh, chapter 40, verse 10. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's the prophet Zechariah that we studied a few weeks ago. It all had to take place with the Jews living in Israel around a certain time period. Stop it, is what the, angel, what, what the enemy was trying to do. And Park, that Messiah came. That's exactly what we celebrate as a church. That the Jews did get back. Why? Because they had angelic support. And they were, they were provided for. The temple was rebuilt. And the Messiah came and fulfilled exactly the prophecies that every prophet wrote about. That the Messiah would fulfill. Fulfilling the law perfectly. Becoming the final Passover lamb that was slain. This is what this story is about. Daniel chapter 10 is Satan trying to say, don't let them get back to Israel. Daniel prays. Now, what does that mean for us? Daniel had his own battle and his own time that he was entering into. We have another mission. The commission's been given to us. Jesus, we say it every single, every single week. When Jesus rose from the grave, he looked at his disciples. He said, build my church. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the same mission that the people of God in the Old Testament had. Jesus just proclaimed it over his church. And, and where you see followers of Christ stepping into this battle, Stepping in boldly and saying, let's go. Let's make disciples. Let's baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to find spiritual warfare coming up in their life. And my job as a pastor is to equip you for that reality. How do you fight these battles? It's with prayer. A lot of what you see is not just what you see. But until you pray, you can't do anything. You're just moving mud around. The battle's more than finally giving up that bad habit in your life. That's just what you can see. The battle's more than your children getting bullied at school. That's just what you can see. You want this one? I'll go there for you today. The battle is more than Roe v. Wade getting overturned. That's just what you can see. 
underneath it, there is a spiritual battle for your family. There's a spiritual battle for your city. There's a spiritual battle over those Supreme Court justices which is taking place. And what do we do as Christians stepping into these things? We pray. This is what God's people do because Jesus is invited into this relationship with us. He says, bring me, enter into it. I don't want you battling demons with a sword. You're going to lose that one. Get on your knees. I've got angels who do that for you. Get on your knees. Pray. Trust me. Church, there's so much work to do. The the battles we face, if you go home and you begin to evaluate your life in light of this sermon, I think there might be some like, like little notches that get clicked together in your mind. You say, maybe that thing I'm dealing with in my marriage is more than what I'm thinking. And maybe I'm trying to solve it the wrong way. I think we can analyze this and apply this in our own lives appropriately. But you need to hear what the call is. The call is to understand this passage. To step into the battle courageously. And the way we do that is to come together as a church family. And we pray as if God is about to shake the heavens. And then we watch and we wait because he is. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We love you, Lord. God, thank you so much for the sweetness of being followers of Christ, for the sweetness of knowing Jesus. Thank you so much for the sweetness of, of knowing our full identity in Christ. God, I pray in this room that there would be a, a movement of the Holy Spirit that would send us out of this place thinking right thoughts about God. Anywhere where there's been wrong thoughts or anywhere where there's been inconsistent thoughts of God, would you please shape it? Shape us to know you better. Anywhere where anything I've said is incorrect, remove it from our minds right now. But anywhere where your word has been preached faithfully, would you sear it in our hearts so we might live more faithfully? Amen.